people who get up on an early, uh, on a Sunday morning, rush their coffee, take a shower, get out for a nine o'clock service, they're not necessarily asking themselves a question, what is it God wants from me? Right? Some of it is, is, it's, you know, it's like, well, you know, you know, I already know all that stuff and, and I heard it all before and so I don't, I, there's not just nothing new under the sun, right? And so we just kind of put the question on the, the shelf as though we don't really need anything else from that. We already know all the answers. And I, and I think what we're going to look at this morning is going to say, yeah, that never really happens, <laughs> right? You know, and there's others, it's kind of like along the idea of, you know, um, uh, you know, it's... it's I don't know how we're going to put this. It's, it's kind of like you're playing Monopoly and you've got a get-out-of-jail-free card, right? I mean, I believe in Jesus. God's forgiven me, so what difference does it make, right? At the end of the day, God's going to look at me, and no matter how I live, whether I did what he wanted to or not, because I believe in Jesus, God's going to forgive me, so what difference does it make? It's really kind of an irrelevant question. Mm, I, I wouldn't. I wouldn't put too much stock in that one if that's where you're trying to invest. And the list can go on and on. Others, it's... it's you know, I, I think in, to a certain extent, it's like, you know what, that, it, it never seems to end, right? So I just got weary of asking the question, right? You know, I was a believer. I, I came to know Christ, and my life started changing, and I was really into all that stuff. But now I've kind of started saying, you know, and it just, it seems like there's always something more, right? Well, God's never satisfied, right? He just always wants something more for me, and it just gets tiring. And after a while, I say, I don't even want to think about it anymore. Just to heck with it. Right? I don't even want to think about it anymore. And, and, if, and if you're in any of those camps, what we're going to talk about today is really going to be relevant to you. But especially if you're in that last camp, it's really going to be relevant to you, what we're going to look at. And I'd love for you to take your Bibles and turn to the book of Micah, right? The book of Micah. Now, uh, for, those, for those of you who's in the Pew Bible, you're going to find our text on page 788. For the rest of you, Good luck. I'd probably tell you to use your index in the front of your Bible. But Micah is stuck in the middle of what we refer to as the minor prophets. So those are all the short little prophets at the end of the Old Testament. And you're going to find them shortly after Amos, which is one of the bigger books in there and a couple of others. But you're going to find the book Micah. And uh, just as an aside, the name Micah means who is like God. So it's interesting that this prophet who is speaking to us, his name is really a question. Who is like God, right? And so Micah really is addressing this issue for us today that we want to look at. And, and, and our, our, our focal verses are verses 6 through 8 of Micah chapter 6. But we're going to look at all of, of the first eight verses of this chapter. But let me give you a little bit of background. First of all, Micah, it, he, he is a contemporary of Isaiah. So a lot of you are saying, that still doesn't help me, right? You know, I, 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 where does Isaiah fit, right? I mean, it's like telling you, well, take a right, you know, you take a right after Aunt Millie's barn. Well, if you don't know where Aunt Millie's barn is, you don't know where to take a right. So it's like, so this is the period of time that's kind of squashed in where the Israelites are kind of getting pressured by Assyria at the beginning and Babylon at the end. And, and, and the northern kingdom is going to go into exile and they're never going to return. And, and at the far end of that era, the southern kingdom is going to be exiled off to Babylon, and then after, they're going to return. And, and it's right in that time frame that Micah and Isaiah and others are serving. And, and, and Micah probably had the privilege of serving with an awful king and also being a prophet during a time when there was some great restoration going on under Hezekiah. And so the, the, the beginning parts of the, ver, of the chapter, verses chapters 1 through 5, are really um, a part of the continuing prophetic 
call of the, the, the prophets against the Israel, both the northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah, that, yeah, you know, you're going to the temple, you're going into the tabernacle, you're going to the place of worship, and you're doing all your offerings and stuff, but you're really, I mean, the way you're treating everybody, the way you're acting, what your everyday life looks like, God, God can't bless it. In fact, God's going to judge it. And if you don't change what you're doing in a short period of time, you're not going to be here anymore. Now, Micah has a tenet, Micah's prophecy also in, offers a word of hope, saying that after God has exercised his judgment on the southern kingdom of Judah by sending it into exile and destroying Jerusalem, including the temple, that God's going to allow a remnant to return, and there's going to be this new hope that's going to develop. And that's the first five chapters. But in chapter 6, we, we have this change that goes on. And let's just read these eight verses, and then I'll, I'll make some comments about it and, and, and draw some points for us. So, so there's really just, just a, kind of like a, an end and a new start. This isn't like a continuous book, but this is like a collection of, of, of Micah's prophecy. So there's kind of like a new beginning in chapter 6. And so and this, is, this is how it goes. It says, now listen to what the Lord is saying. Now, that's good advice, right? That's good advice, just to start with. Listen to what God's saying. So he's saying, rise, plead your case before the mountains, and let the hills hear your voice. Listen to the Lord's lawsuit, you mountains and enduring foundations of the earth, because the Lord has a case against his people, and he will argue it against Israel. My people, what have I done to you? Or how have I wearied you? Right? That's the idea of, you know, God's never satisfied. There's always something more. It just gets tiring and et cetera. And, and so, so, you know, so, so how have I wearied you? Testify against me. All right? Make your case how I've been unreasonable. Right? He says, indeed, I brought you up from the land of Egypt and redeemed you from that place of slavery. I sent, uh, slavery. I sent you Moses. I sent you Aaron. I sent Miriam ahead of you. My people, remember what Balak, king of Moab, proposed? What Balaam, son of Beor, answered him? And what happened from the Achaia Grove to Gilgal? So that you may acknowledge the Lord's righteous acts. What should I bring before the Lord? It's a great question, right? What should I bring before the Lord when I come to bow down before God on high? Should I bring him with Bring him, uh, should I come before him with burnt offerings, with year old calves? Would the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams or with 10,000 streams of oil? Should I give my firstborn for my transgression? There's been a couple of times I was tempted to do that, but that's not what the Spirit is. So, did I say that out loud? Jeez, all right. Should I give my firstborn for my transgression, the, the child of my body, for my own sin? He has told you, men, what is good. And what is it that the Lord requires of you? It says only to act justly, to love faithfulness, and to walk humbly with your God. Now, let's just back up and walk through this a little bit. First of all, I, you really can't understand this question in and, 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 and this passage unless you understand the setting, right? We're going to get down to the question, what, what, what is it that God requires from me? What is it that God wants from me? What does God expect from me? What should I come before God with if I'm going to respond to him? 
But the, the whole context, the imagery that's trying to be used here is a courtroom. And God has taken his people to court because they have committed fraud. That, that's the whole scenario that's going on here. You know, when God entered into a covenant relationship with the people of God at Mount Sinai in the days of Moses and Aaron, you know, they, they entered into a contract with God. God said, this is what I'm going to do. And as a part of that, this is what you were expected to do. And, and, and they kind of, you know, did it, but it's not exactly what they had promised to do, right? They, 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 and so they were fraudulent in their response to the covenant. So God calls them into the courtroom, in the words of the prophet. And he says, all right, we've got some witnesses, and they've seen it all. Those are the mountains and the foundations of the earth. They've been here. They've, they've observed everything that's gone on, right? So they're my witnesses. He said, so how is it that I have wearied you? How have, it, how have I been unreasonable? How, how am I being too demanding? All right, make your case. Tell me how I have not held up my end of the bargain, right? And the people come back and say, God, we... we Come on, God, we, we, we have no idea what you want. You have never seemed to be satisfied, right? We can bring you in the choicest offering. We can bring you in a one-year-old calf. I mean, it's good and meaty, but it's not too, you know, it's just the best time to eat it, right? We can bring you in the very best calf, right? And, and that doesn't seem to make you happy. What, what, what does God really want? Does he want just not one calf? He wants the whole herd, Right? You know, does God want there to be rivers of blood flowing out of the, of the temple? You know, is that what's going to make God happy? Right? You know, what, what, what is, does God want streams of oil? Does he not just want the tenth of our oil that comes from the vineyard? Does he want all of it? <coughs> what does God want from us? We, do, we don't get it, right? God, what God wants is just too much. He's never happy. So that's their argument back to him. So, so, so we, we don't know what God wants from us. And this is how... The prophet responds. He has told you, young men, what's good. He has told you, men, what is good. And what is it that God wants from you? He wants you to act justly, love faithfulness, and to walk humbly with your God. Some of your verses there in chapter 8 have the word to love mercy or to love kindness. And I actually think that's a better translation, but there's a reason why they come up with the word faithfulness, and we'll get there in just a minute. I think this passage suggests to us that there's three things that we should do. Now, I, we could zero in on verse 8, and there are three things in there. But I, I think it's a little broader than that for us to look at today. The very first thing I think that God wants us to do in responding to him is to remember. Is to remember what it is that he's done. God wants us to remember what he has done. Go back up if you look at verse 4, right? God's got the people in the courtroom, right? And he said, hey, listen, we, we, we entered into a covenant relationship. We entered into a contract together. I promised to be your God, and I was going to bring you out of slavery, bring you into the promised land, and, and I was going to protect you and oversee you. I made my promise. I've kept my promise. Are you keeping your end of the bargain? Let's process this just a little bit. So you look at the beginning. He says, says, I brought you up from the land of Egypt and redeem you from that place of slavery. God did. He brought them out. You know, there's the 10 plagues or whatever. They cross the Red Sea. They come out. They come to Mount Sinai. They enter into covenant with God. A couple of hiccups in there. We're going to be teaching the book of Exodus actually in Rwanda in a couple of weeks. And 
you know, there's a couple hiccups in there with a golden calf and some other stuff, some whining and complaining, but God provides for them. He, he brings them out. He's brought them out of slavery. He's ready to bring them in to be a nation. God kept that end of the bargain, right? Second thing he said, he said, not only did I do that, but I gave you good leaders, Moses, Aaron, and Miriam. Moses was the leader. Aaron was the priest, right? And Miriam was like a prophetess alongside Moses' sister. And he said, I, I gave you great leadership to get you off to a great start so you were on a godly run to begin with, a great foundation. You had people models to show you how to get there. And I used these people to express clearly what it is that I want from you, what it means to be in relationship with me, how this will be a blessing to you. I made that all clear to you. He said, and not only that, when the journey got hard and where it was going to get really hard, is with this whole story of Balak and Balaam. Now, somebody told me this morning, they're reading through the Bible from cover to cover for the very first time in their life, even though they've read, they read all the time. It's the first time they've ever gone straight through. A lot of us have never really probably spent any time in the book of Numbers, right? You know, and, and, and this is a story from the book of Numbers, and it's a fascinating story, right? The Israelites have actually are just about ready to enter into the promised land. They've gotten up to the east side of the Jordan in an area known as Moab, and, and the king of Moab is looking out, and, and he says, there's too many of them from my army, on top of that, they've just obliterated everybody who's tried to stand up to them along the way. He says, I, 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 need, I need divine intervention to protect my kingdom. So he knows this guy who has a reputation for being a seer, somebody who, who kind of has access to God, if you will, and his name is Balaam. So he gets together a group of guys, right, and he sends them off with a truckload of, of treasure and he sends them off to find Balaam, and they find him. He's up by the Euphrates River, a long ride, that kind of thing. They finally get there, and they say, our, ki- our king wants you to come, and he wants you to curse the Israelites so that they will not destroy our nation. And Balaam, you know, he's looking at the pot of gold, and he's saying, well, all right, let, hey, let me go ask God. So he withdraws, and he, and he goes talk to God, and God says, have nothing to do with those guys. So he comes back and says, sorry, I can't go with you. And they're adamant, whatever. Finally, they go back, and they get back to their king, and their king says, I'm not taking no for an answer. I'm I'm just not taking no for an answer. So he sends some some guys with bigger titles with more medals on their chest, right? He sends some more important guys, that kind of stuff, and and he he just writes a blank check. He signs it. He says, here it is. Tell him I'll give him whatever he wants if he'll just come. So off they go, and they get back to, to Balaam. Now, nothing's changed, right? The only thing that's changed for Balaam is that they're offering more money. And so out of greed, he kind of says, well, maybe I should ask God about this again. Right? So he goes off again, and he talks to God. And God, this time, we, we know from the story that God is not happy that he's come back. He says, I gave you my answer, right? You know, and, and, he, and he's mad that the reason why Balaam's there talking to him again about this issue is because he says, God, you know, it, it's a lot of money. I mean, they're offering a lot of money. What do you think? You know, and, and so God said, all right, go, go with them. So the next day they get up and they start off, and, and Balaam gets on his old, reliable, trusted donkey. I mean, they've been, a, you know, Westerns, right? You have your favorite horse. Well, this, this, this donkey has been Balaam's donkey for a decade or more, right? And, and they're just a great tandem. So they start off down the road, and the next thing you know, the, 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 the donkey's, curving off into the field. And, and, and Balaam's like, well, what's going on? And he's hitting the thing, get back on the road, you know? And, and they go down the road a little bit more, and they get to a place where they're kind of 
going between vineyards. So there's a rock wall here and a rock wall there. And, and the next thing you know, the donkey is pressing up against one of the walls and it's banging Balaam's leg. And again, he's hitting him, you know. He's like, what are you doing? That kind of thing. And then they go a little further down the road. And next thing you know, the donkey just sits down. Won't go anywhere. And, and so Balaam gets out a stick and he's beating the thing, you know. And, and, then, and then God gives the donkey the ability to talk. Right? And the donkey turns around and he looks at Balaam and he says, how long have we been working together? He says, when was the last time I acted like this? He says, you don't think I'm doing this for a good reason? He said, take a look. And God opens Balaam's eyes and there in the middle of the path where they were headed is the angel of the Lord with a sword drawn ready to kill Balaam. And Balaam's like, whoa, thanks. And he says, you know what? I'm not going to go. Right? And he said, God, I'm sorry. I, I shouldn't have come back to you. I get the point now. It's not about the money. It's what's right, right in your eyes. He said, let's go back. And God says, no, 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 no. Now I want you to go. So he goes, and on three different occasions, Balak, the king of Moab, tries to persuade Balaam to curse the Israelites. And on all three occasions, Balaam lands up blessing them and talking about their victory and how prosperous they're going to come. So even though they're trying to, you know, here, this, this, uh, the, this nation of Moab is trying to curse the Israelites so that they cannot succeed, God is exercising divine protection over them, right? And it's, it's, it, it's a, an incredible story, right? And, he want, and, and, and Micah wants the people to remember how God's been faithful. This last phrase, many of us, we probably wouldn't get it. And what happened from the Achaia Grove to Gilgal? Some of yours have the word Shatim in there, which is, is, is another appropriate from Shatim to Gilgal. The reference here is the crossing of the Jordan River. It started in this Achaia Grove. And when they crossed the Jordan River, the place where they camped that night was Gilgal. So this is a reference to how God began to bring them into the promised land through the dry ground as he stopped the Jordan River upstream and it all went down and then and the, water, and the riverbed went dry and they crossed the dry ground and they grabbed the 12 stones and they built a remembrance to it. God's saying, listen, I, I, I made a promise to you. I, I took you out of slavery, right? I gave you great leaders to launch you as a nation so you could enter into relationship with me. I protected you on the journey. I brought you into the promised land and I'm standing here as your God. Right? And the whole reason why God is doing this, he says, he says, I want you to remember because faithfulness is ultimately built on trust. And I want you to remember that you can trust me. And that's what leads to faithfulness. And, and, and some of us need to go through that journey. We need to remember what it is that God has done for us. And, and, and we remember that through what he did on the cross, but it goes beyond that as well as God's faithfulness and guidance and protection and support and his mercy and his grace and his love and his provision. And, and we need to remember so that it builds our trust in God so that it promotes faithfulness. Because a lot of us, we, we get to a place where, you know what, I, I, I don't want to trust God with my happiness. I'm just going to do it the way that seems wise to me. And then we land up in a court of law with God saying, hey, you didn't keep up your end of the bargain. Second thing God says, God not only wants us to remember, God wants our hearts. And, and, and he wants, so, so let me make this, this statement to you. God doesn't want your deeds. God wants your character. 
Let that sink in for a minute. God doesn't want your deeds. God's not, God's not sitting up in heaven this morning saying, all right, you know, Christina got up and went to church this morning. Check that off, all right? So some of her to-do list is done, right? God's looking at it and saying, is, is her heart really mine? God's looking at the same thing at me and at you. See, God doesn't just want your time. God wants your life. He wants your heart. He wants your passion. And so when, it, when you look at this, it says, you know, what does God really want you to do? He wants you to act justly because God acts justly. God wants you to exercise loving kindness or faithfulness or mercy because that's the way he is. The, the, way, the way faithfulness kind of wraps itself into here is that God, God's love is described as, as, as covenant love or hesed love, durable love, so that God not only loves us, but that he loves us even when we're unlovable. He's faithful to his love, and that word kind of incorporates all of that. So God, we need to love faithfulness. We need to love that connection. We need to be merciful and kind to others. And God pulls us all together. He says, I, I want your hearts. I don't want just your deeds. I just don't want your check in the plate. I, I, I want your heart. I, I, want, I want your character. I want your person. I want your being. I want your soul. And the reason he wants it is because that's the way that he can fully bless us. Anything short from that, he can't fully bless us. We'll get there in just a minute. Let's just unpack this act justly bit, just a little bit. The, the, the Old Testament in particular, and that's the context in which Mike is speaking and that kind of thing, is it, justice really has a twofold aspect. On one end, it, is, it is, refers to there needs to be appropriate penalty for the crime, right? So, it's, so justice is in the sense of, of our legal sense of what, that the, 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 the penalty fits the crime. So it's not that the poor gets sent to prison for 10 years because they stole a handful of grain to make a, a roll, but the rich get a $100 fine after murdering somebody. That's not just. That's not justice. God says, I, I don't want to have anything to do with that. That's not the way he works. God wants the penalty to fit the crime. And there's a lot. That, that's why we get things like an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, right? Because what they were doing is, well, you, you, you took my tooth, so now I'm going to take your life. You know, I'm going to take your head. Your tooth, your head. You know? God said, no, 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 no. I, I want it to be just. The other aspect of justice, and, and this is a little hard to describe, and it comes out in our area today, in our, our terminology. We might use the word like a social justice. But, but what God did was he was looking at the people and saying, every single one of you is a part of the faith community. And every single one of you needs to be able to have the ability to survive and be a part of that faith community. So he didn't want them treating one another in such a way that one of them would be deprived of their ability to participate in the faith community. So some of the ways that came out was that when, if somebody needed to borrow money from them, you couldn't, you couldn't charge them interest. Because when you get people in desperate situations, you can say, well, all right, 20% interest, 30% interest. Right? It's called a loan shark, right? You, know, you, you never get out of it. So God said, you're not, you're not doing that. Because if, if people get into need and they need to borrow from you and you give where they can never pay it back, then, then they're going to lose everything. There was actually a thing called the year of Jubilee. On the 50th year, every 50th year, if you had been forced to sell your land because you couldn't afford it anymore, you, you actually got it back on the 50th year. You could imagine in year 49, there wasn't a lot of property for sale, right? There might have been a lot of property for sale, but not a lot that was bought, right? You know, that kind of idea. But all of that was built in the fact that these people need to have the ability to be able to live. And, and in the days of Micah, what was happening with the leaders and the religious leaders and others who were in the cities 
were, were taking care of themselves so that when the armies would come in from the north or from the, from the east and, 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 and siege the cities, they had plenty of resources, but the poor villagers were just getting, they were just getting smoked. If it wasn't the Assyrians or some other army taking all their stuff and taking all their harvest and all their farming equipment and everything else, then it was the people in the city who were doing it. And Micah's saying, no, 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 God wants justice. And there's a sense in which we as God's people, if we're going to have God's heart, we need to be that. And personally, and we're not going to get off into this big discussion today, but personally, I think the church has a lot of room for improvement in these days. You know, some of the best things that the church has ever, I mean, outside of, of faith and the ability of human life, but uh, it's, uh, eternal life and those kinds of things, but some of the greatest things, do, do you know that a lot of the public school systems emerged out of the fact that the church started teaching Sunday school? And Sunday school originally was for street kids so they could learn how to read and write and those kinds of things. That, that was a church. Say, so, you know, th- these kids are never going anywhere. If they can't read and write. And the church stepped in and said, these kids, they, they can't, they, you know, nobody, they can't afford to go to school. It was all private school. And so they said, you know what, we're going to offer a school at the church on Sunday for them to come. And it got known as Sunday school. A lot of the original hospitals, orphanages, other things like that came as a result of the church expressing its compassion. Let those days be incredible. But so at the end of the day, all of this is the fact that God is looking for us to give him his heart. He wants us to behave like he behaves. He wants us to care like he cares. He, he wants us to have compassion towards others, not to grow weary in doing good. And he wants us to have this faithfulness, right? So here's the third thing. So we've got two questions we, we've said. What, what is it that we need to remember? The second question is, does God really have our heart? When we look at where our passions are and the way we relate to others and how God's using us in the world, are, are, are we collectively and personally, does God really have our heart? Here's, here's the third thing. God wants our undivided attention. God wants us to remember. God wants our hearts so that we behave like he behaves and we care like he cares. And God wants us he wants us to give him our undivided attention. I, now, I get this out of a couple places in the text. Some of it is the whole stand up and listen part that goes earlier. But actually, what I really want to base it mostly on is the very last phrase, and to walk humbly with your God. This word that's translated humbly in almost every single translation, it, it is the only time in the Old Testament that this word is used. Now, there are other Hebrew words for humble that are used repeatedly in the Old Testament. But in this particular sense, right, you know, that, that this is the only time that this word is used, right? So it's very unique to us. And, and it carries the idea of, of careful, being attentive, being deliberate, being intentional. God wants us, in response to him, to live, to walk carefully, attentively, deliberately, intentionally. You know, and, 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 and that's what it takes. And, and all of this is in the context of where God's saying, this is what I need from you so that I can give you everything that I really want to give to you. And I need your undivided attention to do that. I, I tried to apply that back to, like, to my marriage, right? You know, so just 
Christina's starting to sweat now, all right? So just, just have a little compassion for her or whatever. But, you know, what Christina wa- part of what Christina wants from me, but only part, is, you know, she doesn't want me to lie to her. She doesn't want me to hit her. She wants me to come home. She wants me to help make the house run by making money and those kinds of things. She wants me to be faithful. She doesn't want me to cheat on her and those kinds of things. But if I did all of those things, she'd only be partially happy, right? Because part of what she wants is she wants my interest in her. She wants me to be passionate about her. She wants me to focus on her. She wants me to, to understand who she is, how she's growing, what she needs, how she's changing, and to actually have a sense of, of, of passion about responding to those and ministering to those, right? It's not just a matter of saying, okay, listen, hey, you know, here's a checklist, right? I, I came home tonight. I picked up my socks. I, you know, I, I shoveled the driveway. You know, I didn't cheat on you this week. I haven't lied to you. What, what else do you want, right? And, and, and that's not what a fervent thriving, passionate marriage is about, right? It's about going and saying, you know what? I, I, I can't get enough of you, and I'm obsessed with you in a healthy way, right? And, and so you're, you're trying to figure out what they think and how, what they feel and how you can support and encourage and bless. You're, you're all in. You're passionate about it, right? That's, and, 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 and it's only when I am like that that she is in a possession, position to blame, be able to bless me as much as she can bless me. And, and, and that same dynamic is what God's saying. God's not saying, hey, listen, you know, I paid for this. You better be doing it. That's not God's heart at all, right? You know, God's saying, listen, I, I'm sitting up in here. I got the treasures of heaven available. I want to pour these things out on you. But this is what it takes. This is what it takes. You got to remember. And by remembering, you, can, you, you, you recall that you can trust me, and that's going to lead to faithfulness. It says, man, and, and you've got to embrace the things that are important to me. I, I want your heart. I, I, I don't want just your, your rigmarole of going to church and putting your money in the thing. Whatever. I don't want just your offerings on the altar. I want you. I, I want you to, to, to try to be my agents of grace in the world, to have my passion for justice, for kindness, for mercy, for forgiveness. And, and I want your attention. I want, I want you to focus on me. Because it's only when you are focused on me with a heart that's fully mine and a heart that trusts me am I in a position to be able to bless you the way that I can bless you. And that's what God wants. And that's what God expects. So those are some really probing questions, I think, for us to answer today. And, and probably across this room, there, there, there's a, what is it that you need to remember that's going to stimulate trust in your heart that's going to help produce a faithful life? How is it that God has your heart? How is it that God doesn't really have your heart? Is it really about what God can do for you, or are you really struggling with how can God use me and his kingdom to make an impact? How how, how does that really kind of work out? Does God have your heart? And does God really have your attention? Let's pray together for just a moment. So God, you've spoken. We've already wrestled up front in our service with whether or not we're really ready to to hear from you. We were ready for you to do something in us. So God, you've spoken now. You've called the mountains in, the foundations of the earth. You've spoken your peace. You love us. You've worked in our behalf. You've saved us. 
You're available to us. You've protected us. You care about us. And you want to bless us even more than you already have. So God, help us to answer honestly. Not just with churchy language or thinking, eh, I've been there, that kind of stuff, but, but honestly. What is it that we really need to remember? Do we actually really trust you? With every part of our lives, financially, emotionally, vocationally, etc., etc. Do we trust you? Do we really... Do you have our hearts. Are, are, are we passionate about the things that you're passionate about? And are we really giving God our attention? God, we don't, we don't want to be like those who say, I believe in Jesus, but then never give you a second thought. And that was a large portion of people in New England who said they were Christians, said that they never really think about their faith and that doesn't make any difference in their regular lives. God, don't let us be like that. Help us to give you our hearts. I'm going to just invite you to stay in just kind of a prayerful moment. I'm going to invite Tiffany to come back up along with Sue, and they're going to sing a song for us. Give us a moment just to reflect.